Amen. Let's seek our Heavenly Father in prayer, if you'll bow with me. Father, we love you. Father, we thank you for this precious day that you have made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Father, I just pray that you watch over us this hour. I pray that you give me the words to speak. I pray that you open the mind, the ears, the eyes, and the heart of your children here to your word, and that we can just come away drawing closer to you after reading these words that you've inspired Paul to write. And so, Father, we just thank you for this opportunity that we have. It's in Jesus' precious and holy name that we pray. Amen. Awesome. Well, I've enjoyed our topics of discussion the past several weeks with Palm Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, and winning the war in your mind. You're really not going to be able uh, to beat Resurrection Sunday, the celebration of the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus, and then what that means for us, the hope that we have in the coming resurrection, that we will be a part of a never-ending day and age where we will be raised from mortal to immortality. Everything wrong with this world will be made right. Uh, you, you, you can't beat that uh, topic of the resurrection. But I'm excited to jump back into our series on the book of Romans that we started uh, a couple months ago as we've been going verse by verse throughout the letter of Romans that Paul, the Apostle Paul, wrote to the church at Rome. And Paul, he was writing this letter because he wanted to present the gospel message to the church at Rome. He wanted to go visit them in person. Uh, for whatever reason, he wasn't able to at, at that point in time. So instead of visiting them in person or talking to them via FaceTime or Zoom call, uh, he wrote a letter to the church at Rome. And in this letter, he presents the gospel message to this church at Rome. And throughout this presentation of the gospel message to the church at Rome, he really covers a, a wide range of topics. And it's been a bit of a roller coaster going through the first six chapters of Romans. We spent 10 weeks going over these first six chapters. There's been portions of the text where Paul draws out a lengthy conversation. And there's been other portions of the text where it has been bam, 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 extremely dense with a lot to unpack. And thus far throughout the first six chapters, to kind of remind ourselves of what Paul has been talking about, there's kind of been two main themes that, that I've taken point of in the first six chapters. The first being that, that we have looked at the intense effect that sin has on our lives. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and we all will reap the consequences of sin, death, and more, the, the, the curse of sin. And so that's been one of uh, kind of the, the first major themes of Paul's writing, that we all fall under this curse of sin. We all fall under the punishment of sin because we all have sin in our life. And that means we need saved from that sin. We need to be justified in the eyes of God. God needs to declare us righteous and not a, a, as a, a sinner, someone who reaps the consequences of the sin that they commit. And that's been the second major theme throughout Paul's letter thus far in the first six chapters, that we have a need for justification. We have a need to be saved from our sins and the consequences of it. And God offers it. God offers it to us freely. We are offered justification by God's grace. Grace being something that you don't deserve. You and I, we do not deserve to be freed from the punishments of sin. But that's exactly 
what God is offering us. And all we have to do is live a life of faith. You need to believe in God and his son, Jesus Christ, and then you will be saved. No questions asked. Now, it's not a subtle belief in God, but it's the belief that changes every aspect of your life. A belief that not just alters how you act on Sunday by going to church, but a belief that alters how you live your Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday as well. When someone looks at you and examines your life, it should be so obvious to them that you are a Christian, that, that you have faith in God and his son, Jesus Christ. And if someone were, were to sit down and, and deeply examine your life and, and it not be obvious that you have a faith in God, then you're playing with fire, uh, both figuratively and, and uh, possibly eventually, literally. And so we left off with chapter six, where Paul expressed that we are dead to sin and have become slaves of righteousness. So, so, and Paul continues his discussion by saying we are no longer under the law, but we are under God's grace. Thank goodness. The very last verse that we covered in Romans, if you open up your uh, Bibles to Romans chapter 7, that's where we'll be spending our time this morning. Paul left off in, in chapter 6, verse 23, the last verse, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And to me, that, that sums up pretty well of what Paul has been talking about, that we have sin in our life and we will reap the consequences of that sin, which is death, but the free gift, we, we don't have to pay anything. The free gift to us is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so that's where we pick up uh, in chapter 7 before we left off uh, come Palm Sunday and Resurrection Sunday. And so in, in Romans chapter 7, Paul writes, Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. And so at the end of chapter 6, we, we saw a mini climax of the letter where Paul then proceeds to build upon another case or argument. He expressed in the last chapter, in Romans chapter 6, if you remember, that we are no longer under the law, the law but we are under grace. And he continues along these same lines here. Paul, Paul eventually states that the law is binding on a person as long as he or she lives. And, and Paul illustrates this by using the example of marriage. Both a man and woman are bound to their spouses as long as their spouses have breath in their lungs. In sickness and in health, do we commit ourselves to our spouses? And death is what frees someone from the boundaries of marriage. Many of you guys may be uh, re recited at your wedding, till death do us part. If you went with more uh, of the traditional vows, you probably express it and commit it to one another, till death do us part. And so Paul says, if you live with and engage in sexual activity with another person while your spouse is still alive, you commit adultery. If you have not been freed from that boundary within that confinement of that marriage. 
However, if your spouse dies, then you are free to marry another person. And so Paul uses this example of marriage, and then he goes on in, in verse 4, likewise, so just like the, this uh, setting and, and these boundaries within uh, marriage between one man and one wife, he says, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. And so Paul says our relationship with the law is just like a marital relationship. We both belong to each other as long as we are both alive. And after Paul went through this illustration of a marriage and being bound to one another um, uh, until death do us part, Paul could have said that we were married to the law, but the law was killed. He could have said that, but that's not what he said. He said that it's not the law that dies in this relationship between us and the law. It's us. We have died to the law. Paul talked a bit about this process in the last chapter as well. When we are baptized into a belief in Christ Jesus, we are united with him in his death. Our old self, that this old order of things dies. A part of us dies when we are united with Christ Jesus. And so it's not this law that, that dies off in a relationship, but, but it's a part of us that dies off. We have died to the law. And because of that, we are free to belong to another. And this time around, through a living faith, we belong, according to the words of Paul, we belong to the one who has been raised from the dead. We just got done celebrating that, that exact resurrection, the resurrection of Christ Jesus. And so formally, God's people, the, 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 those who followed him, they were married to this law, but now through Christ, everything changes, and now we are dead. We are dead to the law. We are dead to sin, and now we belong to Christ Jesus. While we were under the law, we were aroused by our sinful passions. The, the command, you shall not commit adultery, led us to a sinful desire to commit adultery. But now we, we are released from the law. We now serve in the way of the spirit, not a written code. We're not going to dive into that, that topic right now uh, of serving in the way of the spirit, as that's going to be our focus for next week. As we'll see here in a minute here, Paul presents a problem to us, and it's a big problem that we have on our hands. And so today may not be uh, the most fun discussion, because it's never too fun to talk about the, the problems and the issues that we have as human beings, but it's important to be self-aware. It's important to be self-aware, and, and we're going to be made aware that we have a problem, and next week, in talking about service and the way of the Spirit, we'll find that is our solution to the problem that we face uh, in, in, in our lives. 
And so the basic thought here that, that Paul is making in, in these first six verses is that our relationship to the law is, is just like a marital relationship where you, we, where you are bound to these certain boundaries as long as, as both of you have breath in your lungs. But in our relationship and our marriage to the law, we have died. We have been united with Christ in his death. And so now we are free to belong to someone else and that someone else is Christ Jesus. And so Paul continues in verse seven. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. So one can kind of paint a negative picture of the law through some of Paul's writing. writings. One could try and reason that the law is sin. When you kind of piece through some of Paul's writings, that's the danger of taking certain pieces of scripture out of context. You can come away to drastically different conclusions like the law is sin. And Paul is aware of this, that, that he may be kind of painting a negative picture of the law. And so he wants to bring awareness to this. What then shall we say, that the law is sin? And Paul says, by no means. As we have to remember, the law was given to the Israelites from who? From God. This was a good thing given from God. It was a good thing given to God's chosen people. It was given for their own benefit. By itself, the law is holy and divine as it comes from the words of God alone. That is holy. That is divine. By itself, the law is just. Was the Israelites, they, they followed this law, the, the, this system of an eye for an eye, the, this just system, whereas the other societies around them they acted like barbarians. It was a very barbaric age that they were living within. And so here, this law, this good law given from God to the Israelites, it was a just law. Far, exponentially better than these other systems and governments that these surrounding nations had. And it was good. This law that God gave to the Israelites it was not because God is some harsh dictator who likes to just uh, tell us what to do and what not to do for his own pleasure. No, he gave this law because he loves them. And he wanted what was best for them. Whereas he says, uh, the Israelites, a, a well-known law that they couldn't eat the pigs. And to us, to me, that sounds so cruel. Why would, why would the Israelites not, or why would God not let the Israelites eat bacon? But, but we learn through, through science and, and medicine uh, insights today that these pigs, they eat all sorts of these different things. And, and there's a thing called bacteria, which we can't see with, with the naked eye. And so God was protecting the Israelites from the harmful bacteria that, that these pigs would digest. And so all these laws were for their own good. And so the law was from a holy and divine, perfect being. It was to his chosen people and it was for their own good. And so by no means is the law sin. But now, with that being said, the law brings forth sin. 
And there are two ways that Paul expresses the law bringing forth sin in these two verses. The first one in verse 7 is that the law brings forth sin in the sense that it is what defines and gives shape to sin. Whereas Paul says, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. And so the law brings forth sin in the sense that it defines what sin is. It defines the, the, these different commands that we are to obey and, the, and these uh, different uh, forbidden actions that we are to stay away from. The law, it gave the people the rules to follow. And if they then disobeyed the law, then they committed sin. And, and, and so that's one way in how this law brings forth sin, as that, that the law is what defines and gives shape to sin. The second way, as Paul talks about in verse 8, but sin sees an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. As the law brings forth sin in the sense that we often have an innate desire to do which is forbidden. When we look back at the very beginning of the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, we went through the story last week. Adam and Eve partook of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil after it was forbidden. This rule, this law that Adam and Eve had, they kind of had this innate desire. They had a little help and persuasion from the serpent. They kind of had this innate desire to do what was forbidden. If I tell Ezra, my son Ezra, if I tell him not to tickle me, you know what he's going to do? He is going to tickle me every single time. And if I just don't even bring the discussion up, he's very likely not to bother me by tickling the ticklish parts of my body. Um, but the moment that I bring it up, hey, don't tickle me, he's going to come up and he's going to run and he's going to come tickle me. Uh, from the moment that we are babies, I think we have this innate desire to do what is forbidden. The law forbids us to covet what our neighbors have. And sin takes hold of us and produces all kinds of covetousness. This is extremely present in our social media world. And so although we have to understand the law is a very, very good thing for, for the group of people that God gave this to us for their own good, the law is not sin, but the law brings forth sin in the sense that it defines sin, it gives shape to sin, and we as human beings, our fleshly desires, we have an innate desire to do what is forbidden, to do what is wrong. And so Paul continues here along these same lines. And Paul says in verse 9, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and though it killed me, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin. It was sin. Producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond 
measure. And so here we have a holy, a divine, a just, and a good thing that is the law. And this law promises us life if we follow it. But sin comes along and sin takes this holy and divine and just and good thing that promises life and instead uses this good thing given from God and uses it to destroy us, uses it as our own demise, our own downfall as humanity. Don't ever underestimate the severe power of sin in this world where sin took this good thing, not just from anyone, but this good thing from God and completely perverted this good thing, this good thing that promises life if we follow it. And instead, it serves as our own demise, our own downfall as humanity. Whereas our temptation to sin, it can turn our love, our genuine love for one another, it can turn that love into lust. Our temptation to sin can turn our need for bread into gluttony. Our temptation to sin can turn our need into shelter and turn that into greed and and covetousness of of what other people have. Sin has immense power in this present evil age, and we need to be made aware of that. Paul makes this point abundantly clear again in verse 13, that it's not the law that brings forth death death to us all. It is sin. Sin is the instrument, the instrument that perverts this law, which leads to the death of mankind, of disobeying the words of God, this good thing. And so Paul continues in verses 14. And we have to be uh, careful here. This this is probably one of the most uh, often misused uh, pieces of scripture uh, in the Bible. Paul writes it in verse 14 through 20. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me." So this is one of the most complicated, misused passages in the Bible from my personal experience. And basically what Paul is saying here is that we have this internal conflict that Paul, and it's not just an internal conflict for us, but Paul is personalizing this. All these things are I, 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 I. And so Paul shares with us an internal conflict that he experiences. And essentially, if we sum up this discussion here, Paul desires to do good and not to do bad. But on occasion, he finds that he does not do the good and he does the bad. That's essentially, that's a simple version of what Paul is saying here. And so there's this struggle 
between our fleshly desires and living in cohesion with the spirit. Well, we'll talk about next week. It is a struggle that is mentioned in several different spots throughout the New Testament, especially in a lot of Paul's writings where, where we have our old self, the, 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 these fleshly desires enslaved to sin, and we have our new selves. Righteous, the, 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 the child of God, where we are living in cohesion with the spirit. And sometimes these two natures within ourselves, they butt heads. They, they, they do not work cohesively with one another. And, and, this, is, and this is really a, a pretty constant present theme throughout the New Testament. During my studies this past week, I learned that this concept is not original to the New Testament. And it's not original to this radical Christian movement. Apparently, the, the Jews followed along these same guidelines as well. According to Barclay's commentary, quote, the rabbis taught that every individual had two nature called the Yetzer Hatab and the Yetzer Harah. It was the Jewish conviction that God had made human beings like that with a good impulse and an evil impulse inside them. There were rabbis who believed that that evil impulse was present in the embryo in the womb. There, even before birth, it was a malevolent second personality. It was the ever-present unyielding enemy. It was there waiting, if need be, for a lifetime for a chance to ruin a person. But the Jews were equally clear in theory that no one need ever succumb to that evil impulse. It was all a matter of choice. And so Paul here, uh, the, the, the church at Rome consisted uh, heavily uh, of Jewish influence, uh, which is why in verse 1 of chapter 7, do not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law. Paul, Paul is speaking to a, a large percentage of Jews here who are well familiar with the law, who, who are well familiar with this, with this concept of a battle going on within ourselves some may call it a war within our mind. It ties in very well into our, our series that we're going through on Wednesday evenings. That there, there is a war going on in our mind. We have these fleshly desires. And we have our new selves living in cohesion with the spirit. And Paul recognized that at time, the sin living in him won. There are times where he desired to do good, but he didn't do it. And there were, there, were, there were times in his life where he desired to stay away from the bad and evil, but yet he, he fell into the temptation of that sin. And now what a lot of people, I think, misuse this passage is they take all of the responsibility off of themselves. And I think that that is a huge mistake. I think, I think that is a, a dangerous concept that can uh, really derail you in, in, your, in your walk with God. I don't think Paul is denying personal responsibility here, as he is recognizing that it's a power and influence that is dwelling within himself. And we are held responsible for the sin that we commit by these temptations that we have within ourselves. This is not and I've heard he's this way. This is not an excuse to sin. Many will, will try to use this passage as an excuse to sin. But let me tell you, God hates sin. And that still applies here in Romans chapter 7. God hates sin. To me, it's simply a reality check that we, ha we all have an inner conflict going on. 
Now, some of us um, may think we're, we're the only ones going through the, these struggles, these temptations, but no, this is an internal conflict that is going on in the mind of Paul, and I believe it's an internal conflict that's going in all of our minds throughout the week as well. There is a war going on. And the fact that Paul recognizes inner conflict, it does not little the severity of the sin that we commit. The writer of Hebrews uh, writes, if we deliberately continue in sin, there no longer remains a sacrifice for our sins. Hebrews chapters 10, verse 26. And so we're not belittling sin here. I really want to make that very clear. We're not belittling sin. We're not excusing ourselves from the responsibility of following the commands of God and following the one to whom we belong now, Christ Jesus. There's an issue, though. There's an issue. With our own power, we have no solution to this war going on in our mind. Paul writes in verse 21, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. I'm sure we've all been there. When we, when we want to make the right decision, when, when we want to steer clear of this temptation, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. I, I delight in, in obeying the word of God, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? So Paul says it's, it's his desire to follow the words of God. He, he is in agreement with the law of God. But yet there is a war that is being waged. And, and this mind, the, the, these thought process taking him captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So the apostle Paul, of all people, says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? In verse 25, just a slight preview, Paul says, Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And so Paul asks the questions in verse 24, Who is going to save me from this problem? Because I cannot do it on my own. I do not have the power alone within me to win this war. But verse 25, but thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. And that's the solution. God is the one who provides us the solution to this issue that we want to do good, but sometimes we, we, we succumb to the temptation to commit sin. And the solution is found in chapter eight as we talk about a life in the spirit, not within the flesh. And so here in chapter seven, what we've dealt with this morning, again, not a super fun, cheery message as really Paul here, he's bringing light to the fact that we have a problem at hand and we need saved from this problem. 
As we have been freed from the law, which again, the law is a good thing, a holy, divine, just, and good thing given to God to his chosen people in the Old Testament. So the law is a good thing, but sin has corrupted it. Sin has corrupted this good instrument and uses this command which promises us life and uses this, that promise, the, these laws, to use it as our own demise, as our own downfall, as the destruction of mankind. And so sin corrupts us, and there is an internal struggle going on within our mind. And unfortunately for us this morning, we, we don't have time to delve into that solution. So if you came here this morning and you listened to this problem, you got to come back next week as we talk about the solution to this problem. Because it seems like, if you leave off before verse 25, it seems like we are lost. There, there, there is no hope for mankind. But verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. For God has a solution to our issue, to our problem that we face, that there is a war going on in our mind and that we need to live in the spirit. Let's pray. Father God, I just thank you that uh, in the midst of our struggle with the immense power of sin, that you have provided us every tool that we need to come out victorious in this war against sin. So Father, it's my prayer this morning that none of us here grow complacent, none of us here grow comfortable, but that we are ready to defend ourselves in this war, that we are ready to defend ourselves by living in cohesion with the spirit that you have blessed us with. So Father, I, I thank you that you offer this beautiful gift to us in the midst of our broken selves stained by sin. And so we love you. We thank you. It's in Jesus' precious, holy, authoritative, and powerful name that we pray. In God's church said, amen.